Welcome, I'm Ross Young and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy, and we are excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. Just as a quick background in case you haven't heard our show before, CISO Tradecraft is a podcast designed to help folks in the information security community learn the techniques, methods, and technologies in the industry. The show focuses on helping mentor the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, I'm excited to present to you today's show. And hello again, and welcome to another episode of our CISO Tradecraft podcast. I'm here with Ross Young. This is G. Mark Hardy. And as always, it's a pleasure to go ahead and share information with you that we hope will help you in your career and help your organization do a better job with security. And this time we're gonna be talking about cloud and cloud security. And I think this is really important because if you are absolutely proficient in the cloud, if you eat, sleep and breathe the cloud, I will give you an advance warning. You will probably find this episode to be a bit of a rehash. However, comma, if you're like a lot of people out there where you kind of think you know all these things about the cloud, but if pressed to go into detail, you might come up a little bit short. Hey, this is for you. And really what we want to be able to do then is for folks who say, hey, our organization may be going to the cloud or we're starting to go to the cloud or we're thinking about it. What do you need to know as a security professional to be able to provide that leadership? So Ross is going to be our resident expert for today, quite legitimately so. And my goal here is to be able to, if you will, interact with him in a way that gives you the details that you're going to need to be able to have a solid understanding at the end of the broadcast. Ross. Great. Hey, thanks for having me here today. I love sharing my information and, and expertise on cloud. Just as a little bit of background, I was there at CIA when they adopted the cloud. I was at Capital One as they made a cloud shift where everything runs only on the cloud. And I'm once again doing cloud at Caterpillar Financial. So I've encountered it all throughout my career. And I think it's something that a lot of other people are also encountering. So hopefully you can provide some good tips, tricks to give you what you need to know to have expert tradecraft in this topic. Exactly. And uh, as I say, my CISO career has involved working with organizations that weren't as closely involved with the cloud. So uh, I will confess that this broadcast is almost as much as it is for me as it is for everybody out there. So let's start out in the most basic fundamental question. Uh, Ross, what is the cloud? I mean, we used to say, hey, it's somebody signed a 20-year lease on a data center, and then everything went to blades, and they only needed 5% of the floor space, so they decided to monetize the rest of it, and they rented out excess capacity. Well, it's kind of a silly way of looking at it, but maybe not. What's, what is the cloud? Let's start at the, the very basic building blocks. The cloud is a server, right? You're going to run something on it. And, and the way it would have worked you know, 10 years ago is I would go to a store like Fry's or some other electronics store and I would buy uh, all the hardware I would need to run a web application. And once I buy these physical hardware, you know, the, the mounting cases, the power supplies, the heating and cooling fans, the motherboards, the graphics cards, anything I would need to, to get everything running, I'd plug it into the wall. Well, that's good. But what happens when we have 500 people 
plugging things into the wall on our power supply and we have to deal with heating and cooling and all these other things, well, we start to say, let's let's get a data center together. And, and we do this, but, but do I really care to hire HVAC electricians, plumbers, and all the other people I need to have just to have this thing well-wired and, and running? Well, it, it's very expensive unless you're doing these at large scales. So what happens is when we talk about the cloud, we see providers like Amazon, Google, and Azure say, you don't have to do any of this hardware anymore. We got you covered. We're going to provide a service that hosts your servers, these software devices, and you just remote into these things and you configure them however you want. So we're going to talk a little bit about different types of cloud, but it's all about how do I provide a service so that you can host servers within, within an environment? So got it. So really the cloud has a couple, if you will, features in its definition. It's on-demand computing and it's pay-as-you-go, which means that instead of having the CapEx, the capital expenditure of buying the hardware, buying the software, having to go ahead and get together with the accounting department in terms of depreciation tables, hooking in the infrastructure, the wiring, et cetera, all that operational expense goes away. And now instead of, I'm sorry, the capital expense goes away. I'm now into operational expense. In a way, it's almost like leasing a vehicle from Avis for the weekend as compared to buying an automobile because you have to go someplace this weekend. Monday morning, you don't have anywhere else to go, and yet you got a car sitting in your driveway that you already paid for, it's depreciating. Is that a fair analogy? Yeah, that's exactly right. All right, Ross, so when we look at cloud models and things like that, there's different types of ways that we could provision, right? We could go to and ask for different types of services. Uh, what are those services, and then do we have any good analogies for them? Sure. So we have four types of services today with traditional computing and cloud computing. The first is on-premise. The second is infrastructure as a service. The third is platform as a service. And the fourth is software as a service. And let's look at an example of pizza. And I don't know if you guys like it, but I love making pizza with my family every Friday night. And in the traditional example, I'm going to go into my house. I'm going to fire up the, the kitchen, the gas oven. I'm going to make pizza dough from scratch with flour and eggs and oil and salt. And then I'm going to get all of the pizza sauce, the toppings, and put everything together. So in this on-prem example at my house, I had to do absolutely everything to make this pizza. Now, if we say, how can I get a little bit simpler? Well, we might think of the college dorm scenario, right? In this college dorm scenario, a, a person doesn't have an oven, a kitchen, or a gas stove in, in any way. They just have an empty bedroom, and they go to somebody else's kitchen, and there they make the dough, they make the toppings and the sauce and cook the pizza. So not having to provide any physical hardware is what we would call infrastructure as a service. And the next step of, uh, of convenience would be called platform as a service. And you can think of this as going to Costco and buying a cheese pizza and then coming back to your house. Well, you didn't have to make the dough this time. And that saved you a lot of work. You didn't have to put the sauce on this time. But you know what? 
maybe you want to still add some pepperoni. So you buy them in a package of pepperonis and you add those separately. Well, this provided you all the convenience of only having to put the toppings on and cook the pizza. So that's a, that's a platform as a service model. And last but not least is the software as a service model. This is where the vendor does everything. This would just be like calling Pizza Hut or Domino's and saying, I want two pizzas, please deliver it to my house. And you don't have to do any work. You just pay for the service. All right. So let me recap that and make sure I get this correctly. So a traditional on-prem deployment, the analogy would be that I buy the server, I buy the software, I plug in the electrical, I plug in the network, I update all my operating system, I update all of my applications, I provide my own data, and I basically am doing it all. Uh, and so as a made-in-house pizza, I basically am providing everything. And that's kind of what we do without the cloud. And so that's sort of our starting point. And as you know, there's a lot of moving parts there. The infrastructure as a service, I, I love your analogy about being able to go to like a college dorm, because I remember when I was in the dorm, you weren't allowed to cook in your room, but they had a kitchen downstairs. And so what you do is the dorm would provide the kitchen, the gas and the oven. And then we just show up with the, and make our pizza and stuff like that. And so that's your infrastructure as a service. And we'll talk a little bit about how that comes out. The platform as a service, we're basically, um, I just buy kind of a frozen pizza go and then go downstairs into the uh, dorm basement. And then I just add my own toppings and cook. And of course, software as a service is the easiest where basically everything is prepared for us. And so it sounds like as we move from on-prem through IaaS, infrastructure as a service, to platform as a service, PaaS, to software as a service, SaaS, that I'm getting less and less visibility into the underlying stack. Really what's happening is more and more is being done for me, correct? Exactly. So when we think on a very technical level, today developers in an EC2 server, which is just Amazon's way of hosting a Linux server or a Windows server. So let me call to... you out every time you introduce a new environment. So Elastic Compute Cloud EC2, all right? Yeah. So in this Elastic Compute Cloud or EC2 server, developers have to install an operating system. They have to install a programming language like Java or, or .NET. They would have to install middleware components to run some type of a, a web application. So maybe they're running something like Tomcat. Afterwards, they're going to install any web libraries and application libraries they need to make this a, a web application. And only after they do all of that can they write their custom code and, and host it on this server to, to perform the unique functionality your business requires. And so developers, you know, looking at that, they really don't care about the operating system. They really don't care about the middleware. They just want to write their Java code. So in this IAS model, we can, we can see there's a lot of maintenance and time and effort wasted on things. And they have to patch and keep all this maintenance up. And that costs time and money that for developers could be dedicated on just building more and more new features. So Amazon and Google and, and all the cloud providers have really come up with this solution called a platform as a service where they will provide and host 
your Java application middleware, and all you have to do is write your custom code. And you'll hear something like Amazon Lambda, which is their serverless way that you can host your applications. And, and last but not least, we have the, I don't want to write anything. I just want a SaaS solution. Well, you can think of this as Office 365, right? You didn't have to build any code to, to create an email. You just log into the platform and, and click Compose. That is a lot of functionality and features that you gain with minimal maintenance. Got it. So as we kind of go up, not really the stack per se, we're not talking about our seven layer OSI model, but we're talking about the different levels of responsibility. If we go from our traditional on-premises model and then we move our way through the stack, let's talk about when the cloud provider kicks in. So when I'm at my own location, I do my own networking, but guess what? As soon as they hit infrastructure as a service and beyond, cloud provider takes care of that, right? That's right. Okay, Amazon has a master level network access control list that they call NACLs. You can think of these as the giant Cisco or Juniper firewalls that you would have had at your perimeter that said, only allow this traffic to come in, only allow these ports to be open in my demilitary demilitarized zone or DMZ, if you will. And so what we do then is we've transferred immediately, as soon as we go to the cloud, any requirements for having to deal with that networking. How about storage? On-premises, I've got to run all my own storage. And yet that kicks in right away, doesn't it? That's right. Instead of having to host your own SAN or NAS device, you could use something like Amazon S3, which is their simple storage uh, location for you to put things. And they also have another thing called elastic block storage. And this would be like attaching another hard drive to a server. All right. So then that is able to go ahead and take care of it. And then of course the servers themselves, if I'm running it myself, I've got to have a physical device sitting in my data center or in my closet or at, under my desk, right? That kicks in over immediately to the cloud. That's right. There's a couple different ways you can host servers. We already mentioned EC2, which is pretty much one of the fundamental building blocks of, of Amazon. And these things allow you to put them in intranet, so it can be a private IP space, even though it's in the public cloud. You can also have it a public-facing website and make it externally facing. So a lot of configuration options there. Got it. And so one of the things you find out is that in the cloud, there's not a device with a little sticky note on the front of it saying, this is GMARC server, this is Ross's server. This is all virtualized. These are not physical devices all stacked up like safety deposit boxes at a bank, correct? This is uh, through virtualization. And this yeah, they, they really allow you to choose your own adventure. They give you all the tools and you can misconfigure them and cause a lot of damage to your company, or you can configure them well to run enterprise services that are secure and really transform your business. Mm -hmm. Got it. And so now we're at the point where if I'm running it myself, I've got to go ahead and 
set up and run and patch my operating system. Now, this is, I think, where we get the first start of the variation in the services that are provided by a cloud provider between infrastructure, platform, and software as a service, correct? That's correct. So in the EC2 matter, you would have to patch your own operating system. Think of this as going off Microsoft and, and doing Patch Tuesday, all those Microsoft vulnerabilities that you have to go in and do. And it may be 50 every month, right? It, it can be a lot. Now, if you take a Lambda job, you don't have to do that at all. And so that saves your team time and money. And what it also saves is the other people time. So your security organization doesn't have to look for vulnerabilities at the OS and middleware layer because it's just removed. It, Amazon has basically said, we're going to patch all of that for you and keep you permanently patched. So this can be a huge savings in terms of time and security and, and really improve the overall risk posture of your company. Which of course then begs the question, what would be the decision criteria for a cloud customer to stop at the infrastructure as a service and say, hey, I'll take care of my own OS, my own middleware, my own runtime, and not just keep right on going to platform as a service. What causes organizations to say, you know what, I still want to own this? Well, you're, you'll see a couple things right now. If you look at containers, containers still require you to patch the OS and middleware runtime layers. So anyone who's doing containers today, that is still a huge effort. The other thing that I will also say is it takes a lot of work to rewrite your code to run natively as a Lambda function. So you may have technical debt where your company has built your banking applications for 10 years in Java, and you can't just push one button that says port to AWS Lambda. You, you may have to spend a year, two-year journey to rewrite your code to work cloud-natively. Hmm. Okay, so then therefore, it's really almost a sign of maturity in a way, is that organizations that have been at it for a while have made the strategic decision to say, we are going to commit to the cloud, are going to go through a process of re-architecting their critical applications into a cloud type of environment. So it, it really kind of is a one-way trip, it sounds like. that. It's, it's not something where you you try it for six months, you go, yeah, I don't really like the cloud, I want to go back. If you're really going to commit to it, then it suggests that we're going there. So uh, there's nothing wrong with that, I suppose, but it means that um, we probably don't see an awful lot of organizations going back the other way to say, you know what, I'm going to just get out of the cloud and come back to on-premises. But I, I think what you started talking about in the beginning, which is you get some huge convenience factors and also some potential really cost savings. It's like, why would you want to go back? Have you ever run into anybody who's wanted to? Sometimes you have certain legal requirements. So for example, if you're a gaming entity in the state of Nevada, you need to keep your data local to the state of Nevada. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there may have been times where AWS or Google just didn't have regions that you could deploy your software to. So you're sometimes forced into that location. And we're seeing more and more countries require data to be hosted natively in China and Russia and other places like that. But what I will say is we're starting to see adoption of these AWS locations all around the world much more than we ever had before. 
So if you may have only had one data center in the US, by going to the cloud, you can now have your data in all these locations to meet those compliance laws and regulations. So I think that's where we're starting to really see a shift. Right. And so what Amazon then has is a number of regions throughout the world. They have some in North America, some in South America, some in what's called EMEA, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and APAC, Asia Pacific. And with things such as the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, and as we saw in 2020 with the California Consumer Privacy Act, and then potentially follow-ons coming out from other states as well, the idea of saying there needs to be some sort of geographic fence around where my information is. And it has to be, even though it's in the cloud, it has to be a cloud that's within some territory. Uh, and I think we ran into that in the federal government with things like FedRAMP, where uh, they said, hey, you can host your federal data, but you can't put it in a server farm in India or in Russia, for example, it has to be in the United States. So it sounds like cloud providers do provide that option if somebody says, hey, my data has to stay physically in some jurisdiction, I can ask for that, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, there's countries that have a lot of legal options that are unique to those countries. Mm -hmm. So if FBI thinks you're a terrorist, they can go to your providers and say, give me all your data, right? And you can imagine that places like China would, would have fear of the FBI looking after Chinese citizens. So they'll want to store it locally in China so that the FBI doesn't have powers to request that data set. And, and that's what we're seeing across the globe and, and allowing people to have those capabilities. So China now can look at your data if you're hosting it in, in China, and they have different types of legal rights and permissions to do that, just like the FBI has in the US. So it provides capabilities and it also provides protections for each country's citizens. And that's a good point. I think it also brings up the idea is that in a move to the cloud, it's important to understand the potential of a political risk here. Because, for example, a lot of European countries have challenged and different you know, elements have said, hey, uh, safe harbor rules that were originally set up. And I think they were struck down in European courts and other things such as that to say what? Because of the things such as FISA court requests for information could require a cloud provider in the U.S. to divulge personal information about a European citizen without notifying that citizen. And so therefore, that was kind of a big push to, uh, from the European perspective, let's not let stuff go to the U.S. So what we have then in Amazon then is you had said regions that are literally all over the world. Now, there's 20 some odd regions. Uh, and then within those regions, I carry, we're going a little bit into the cloud infrastructure here than the IIS platform as a service, software as a service. Um, but you know, let, me, let me pull up out of that just a little bit and stay and track to the end. So when I get to the data and the applications, the data and the applications are still mine in a platform as a service, right? If I go to that second of the three models of the cloud provider, infrastructure as a service where I'm kind of doing everything from the OS down, platform as a service, I'm still going to go ahead and do the application's data. And that's what you explained is like the Lambda function, right? Where Exactly. Yep. Yeah. The runtime's environment is done. Uh, operating system done. I don't have to worry about that. 
And at the very, very edge of the cloud provider, like everything is done for you, like a software as a service, I think kind of the first software as a service I remember coming out was uh, salesforce.com, where you basically had ways to track all of your contracts and it was all done for you. All you had to do is just add data. Um, and don't we have that with today, Microsoft 365? Yeah, so if you think of the difference between a platform as a service and a software as a service, just think of the data application. I'm writing custom code in a Node.js or JavaScript server. That's that's a pass. And and I when I host that on Lambda. So I need a developer who really knows how to type JavaScript. In a SaaS-based solution, I might just go into Microsoft or Google and create a, a form that says, please type this types of input. Well, I can get a lot of people to create a Google or a Microsoft form. They don't need to know JavaScript. They just need to know, hey, this is a question that requires these types of buttons to click, right? So that application skill and that data skill is really removed and, and they'll just put the, the form output into maybe an Excel file that I can share with, with my marketing folks, right? Mm -hmm. So this SaaS provides a lot of convenience and really removes a lot of the technical expertise that you need. So I can see now that the cloud really represents a significant uh, benefit for the customers. I remember several years ago reading, he said, well, you know, with the cloud coming out by the year 2020, 85% of IT jobs will be gone. Well, I'm old enough to remember back in the uh, you know, late 70s when they said, you know, with the computing coming the way it is, uh, paper will soon be a thing of the past. And I used to suggest when I was a young naval officer that if the Soviet Union had ever invented a paper-seeking missile, the Navy had no defense because we were just so deep in paperwork. So obviously we haven't lost our IT jobs. In fact, that's the whole idea of our podcast, how we pivot to this new technology. So what we've got then is a number of different service models that we could request from a cloud provider, which then brings up the question about security and who bears the responsibility for security of the cloud versus, if you will, security in the cloud. Is there anything set up for that? AWS introduces the concept of a shared responsibility model. What this means is it comes back to the service they provide and, and the layers, right? If they give you an infrastructure as a service capability like EC2 servers, where you can host a Linux operating system, they expect you to patch that well. They expect you to configure that well. And if you don't, and your system becomes breached, well, that's on you. Now, at the same time, they also have the pass solutions, which is Lambda job. Well, you don't have to do the OS. You don't have to do the middleware. They've taken care of that for you. So you shouldn't see any vulnerabilities, but in this example, if there was, then that would be on Amazon's fault. So mm -hmm. they, they, they love the ability of looking through things to show you we're providing these capabilities, but it's really up to you to configure them well, right? And, and that's really important because when people look initially at Amazon, they'll say, oh, they passed all their FedRAMP and whatever types of certifications and their ISO NIST compliance. So everything must be secure. Well, 
it can be secure, but did you configure it that way to be secure, right? Just like buying a new car. If you put a drunk driver behind a brand new car, bad things are going to happen. But if you have someone who's very responsible, who knows how to drive well, driving is overall a pretty safe experience for most people. Yeah, so that's a very, very good point. And you'd mentioned that Amazon provides a shared responsibility model and other cloud providers do as well. I mean, Microsoft's shared responsibility model starts out to say the on-prem model, the physical security belongs purely to the customer, but for all the infrastructure platform software as a service models, cloud provider takes care of the physical security. They own the building. They keep the height and line on. The host infrastructure becomes shared in the infrastructure as a service model. But then the cloud provider says, I own it after that platform or software. Network controls are shared in infrastructure, but for platform and software, the cloud provider says, we own that. And as you start to see, as we work our way into uh, more levels of the cloud, platform as a service, um, we're sharing the application level controls and identity and access management. But software as a service, even the client and endpoint protection becomes shared. But at no time does the cloud provider ever take responsibility for data classification and accountability. That is to say the security in the cloud. And I think that's a key thing to remember. And we talked about risk previously. And one of the things about risk is that you can outsource an awful lot of things in your organization, but you can't outsource risk. As a CISO, you can't go to your shareholders, to your board of directors, to your customers and say, well, it's not my fault. Don't blame me. The fact that our vendor screwed it up, it's on you. And so one of the things we want you to understand is that as you move to the cloud, uh, recognize it. Well, there have been some outages in the past. Uh, they do occur from time to time. It's not perfect, but uh, there is that additional risk that has to factor into your thinking. Now, as you talk about the shared responsibility model and security, then it kind of brings up the question about, okay, fine, if I'm putting things into the cloud uh, and it's my responsibility to keep the information secure at all the time, um, how do I do that? Do I get to decide that my information stays encrypted when I'm not using it? Is that best practice? Or is it pretty much just sitting out there and anybody can go find it? Yeah, so we see the example of public S3 buckets being a problem across the industry. And you, you take an organization where they have very sensitive data. If they store it in an S3 bucket, that can be good or bad. It's great for storage. If it's a public thing, and you're hosting your website, perfect. If it's a private thing, but it's hosted publicly, that's terrible, right? So, so you gotta come back and say, is this what I want it to be? And does it provide me what I think it does? Mm -hmm. So what we have, okay, got it. So really we can achieve a high level of security in the cloud. And you know, it was interesting, I, I remember talking to people a couple of years ago, and even today, some people saying, well, I don't know about the cloud and I can't see it. If I can't see it, I don't trust it. And the question that I would ask is, who's got a bigger security budget, you or Amazon? And that's usually kind of a pretty clear answer on that one. The second question I ask is to say, 
of all the stuff that might be hosted by this cloud provider, is yours the most valuable, the most important, the one that's going to create uh, the greatest possible um, desire for someone to want to get something? And if the answer is no, then you probably have a little bit more opportunity from that perspective and things such as that. And so now we're saying, okay, so I guess if they have more money and, and uh, more security, then what's the impediment? And I think a lot of the impediment has just been kind of a lack of understanding or a bit of a concern. So let me share a quick story, if I may, not to go off track, I think it's on track, is that one of the things we do is pen testing. And, uh, and pen tests are fun. I mean, that's the sexy part of computer security where you get to go ahead and you, you get to play bad guy for a little bit with a get out of jail free card in your hand so that if something that somehow you do get caught, then you're saying, well, hey, wait, this is just a test. And they go, okay, fine, you're good. Well, cloud pen testing was rather interesting because uh, for the first time this past year, we had a cloud pen test and my pen tester couldn't get in. And he was so frustrated. He's like, I got to go ahead and keep trying. I go, look, we have done the due diligence as required by the contract. He says, this is a matter of pride. I have never not been able to get into a client site before. I says, okay, you're on your own for your own time. Obviously don't break the law, but give it a shot. And a lot more hours later came back and said, you know what? I can't get in. And it turns out we gave him an A plus. We basically said, you guys have an awesomely secure. Now, why? It was a company that was in India that was hosting customer data for an American corporation. The American corporation wanted an American security company to validate that their information was secure at that location in the cloud. And they got that. And what came out of that was, is that we took a look at it and we realized that the way that security was set up in Amazon cloud, by just using what our close to the defaults, uh, they were able to come up with a security architecture that would have required us to get on a plane, fly to Mumbai, India, sneak into somebody's bedroom at night, steal their cell phone, so that, and then figure out what the unlock code is, break into the office, get into a machine, get on the right IP address, log in, get the multi-factor authentication, and then we could peer in and go ahead and run it. You know what? That's not the risk they're facing. And so, uh, what, you, what we see then is clouds become really, really secure alternatives to doing it on your own. And if you set it up correctly, there's a lot less chance for things to get screwed up as you go forward. That's right. A lot of the traditional vulnerabilities of, well, what happens if a server admin plugs in a USB drive and copies everything off from our data center? goes away when he doesn't have physical access to the to the server room. So it's it's a really good thing to think of. It also provides much higher availability issues, right? So these servers are going to be well managed by very very top tier uh, companies which can be huge for for an organization. Yeah. So you know, we've been talking about Amazon, 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 but they're not the only game in town, obviously. And if you take a look at the Gartner Cloud Report, uh, you can find out there are a number of cloud providers and, and some that don't even bother to participate in Gartner. And yet, although Amazon features high into the right in what they call their magic quadrant, which is a combination of their completeness of vision and their ability to execute, many of these other cloud providers may be absolutely adequate. In fact, may even be superior to uh, going with 
one of the big boys. So quick story back, the last time I spoke at RSA was, I guess it was 2014, it's been a while. Maybe we need to go back there when things clear up. And uh, hosted a talk called, How to Sleep Soundly with Your Data in the Cloud. Question came from an audience member, what percentage of your cloud contracts do you modify at the request of your customers? Now this went to Bruno who is running a smaller cloud company and I'm thinking good luck with that because I've read through the Amazon contract and it's pretty much non-negotiable unless you are huge. Anyway, he said about 85%. And I was kind of as a moderator, he's like, what? You're not supposed to be surprised by your panelists. He said, we want to be easy to do business with. Do you want your data to stay within a particular geographic location? You got it. You want a SOC too? We'll give you a copy of the report. You, what do you want? We want to work with you. And so as you look at considering going to the cloud, of course you get the benefits of massive scale for companies like Amazon, but there may in fact be other more uh, ideal solutions for you. So we're, we're not pitching by brand X, we're saying look at the different brands and see what's out there. But that brings up an interesting point, Ross, is that what if you are either acquiring a company, merging with the company, two different elements of the business have gone in different directions and you have to harmonize. Uh, do you end up in a situation where you have more than one cloud provider? Definitely. I, I think you could imagine a company like Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google. They're buying companies all the time and they're going to be a, probably a Google cloud first company, right? Well, if they buy a small startup, nine times out of 10, they're probably using Azure or, micro, or AWS, Amazon Web Services. And so now they have to do a risk assessment on their cloud environment. Because if an attacker can hack into the small company and the small company gets access to all the trusted resources of Google, well, that's a, a path to move laterally through the network. So places like Google and Alphabet are going to do security assessments on those companies during the merger and acquisition process. They're going to look for how does this meet best practices? Maybe they're going to use a questionnaire like the CAIQ from the Cloud Security Alliance. This questionnaire is, is a list of best practices you would expect. They will also say, what kind of tools are you running to scan and look for vulns in your cloud environment and, and provide some type of evidence to, to get a taste of how good or bad these, these companies are? Got it. So the, the CAIQ, the Consensus Assessment Initiative Questionnaire, which is available through cloudsecurityalliance.org, allows one to go ahead and just through a series of yes, no questions, determine how well you comply to the cloud controls matrix. And the cloud control matrix, you might have heard of the CCM, basically provides sort of a uh, meta framework for security controls for best standards for the cloud. So there actually are ways that we can go ahead and do this right if we're willing to go ahead and take advantage of some of the tool sets that are out there. And I think the Cloud Security Alliance is probably an excellent resource for it. I know when we first ran into him a couple of years ago, talking to one of the guys, and he said, like, you know what, we got more money to know what to do with. We're extraordinarily well funded. And so as a result, they're able to produce some outstandingly valuable tool sets. Now, that's kind of the multi-cloud, as we talked about, when you're going to go ahead and maybe bring in two or three things. Is there any situation where you might be running sort of, well, a hybrid cloud? And, and, and how would that be? 
Yeah. So hybrid cloud is when you still have some of your infrastructure on premises and you're moving to a cloud provider. Let's just take the example of AWS. And, and this is kind of a tough place to be in because you can't fully integrate only cloud native solutions. And, and what I mean by that is if you're doing vulnerability scanning, there are cloud native services like Amazon Inspector. They also have data loss prevention tools like guard duty that you can use to make sure your private data is stolen. But you can't really put that on your on-premise environment. So you're, you're still going to be running some type of alternative solution to do data loss prevention or vulnerability scanning across these two environments. And in, in this hybrid cloud, this is a, a little bit of a, a tough place to be because what you're seeing is as developers think of, instead of lifting and shifting my application and just putting it into the cloud without changing it, I may want to do it cloud natively. I may want to drastically change things. And when they don't install all of the operating systems and middleware like you're used to, well, did you just lose insight into your security tools that would collect data from those systems? And, and that can be a big challenge for organizations as they're meeting compliance objectives, as they're trying to understand how attacks are happening through their environment. When you have attacks that maybe close the gap between some things on the cloud and some things on-prem, and, and how are you getting the same level of insight and data through these hybrid environments? Got it. Wow. Well, you know what I'm finding, Ross, is that as we start talking about the cloud, this is an incredibly rich environment in terms of concepts, ideas, etc. And you know what? We're going to need to do another podcast to keep going because I think we're getting close to our, our time limit here. But I'm hoping that this one is the intro to the cloud, if you will, or our part one is going to really provide sort of foundational understanding for people who have not work with the cloud or sort of think they know what the cloud is or have kind of put their toe into it, but are looking around trying to go, okay, I hope nobody asks me any really tough questions. Uh, and then this is foundational for what will be another show, which we're going to get more into the details, like design principles for securing the cloud and, and what is a way that we as CISO can leverage these tools and, and even kind of how, what's, how's the cloud put together and things such as that. And so, Kind of as a summary, it sounds like we go to the cloud because we're trading that CapEx for OpEx, the fixed expense for variable expense. Uh, we can grow as needed and we don't have to keep things just sitting around idling. And if I have to expand like a Black Friday sale, I can boom, 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 add a whole bunch of servers. And then the day after, take them back down again and I don't have to keep paying for it. And I get great security. I mean, it sounds like kind of a win, win, win all the way around. Yeah, I think you're going to see organizations look at this and, and not look back. We're seeing the scalability, which is huge. We're seeing huge amounts of availability. And you're getting a lot of cost savings that you couldn't get before. Where if I had to go and build all of these unique solutions on myself, that, that'd be expensive. But if Amazon just offers it as a convenient low price service, well, I don't have to run my own DNS server. I can just go to to Route 53, which is Amazon's DNS hosted service. And, and all of these things allow me to be more efficient on how I utilize my resources in a software development organization. 
Sounds great. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for today. But Ross, thank you. As I say, you're an absolute uh, master of this topic and able to explain things in ways that hopefully everybody, A, gets and understands, and then B, are going to be able to find them able to utilize this in their career track as they progress up to and become not just any old CISO, but one of the best CISOs. Great. Thank you again, G. Mark. I always enjoy talking to you and, and discussing these important topics. And for any of our listeners, thank you for being on here today. Please share the episode with your friends on social media. And if you like the show, subscribe. We have more good episodes coming. And next episode, we're going to go much further into the weeds and talking about seven design principles for securing the cloud that you want to implement. Take care.